we're thinking about what are those local elected officials that we need, those prosecutors, those sheriffs, those those district attorneys, like who are the people and the programs and the initiatives that we need to be organizing and making sure that we don't let up on over the next several years that helps us get to a more perfect union the way we need to. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In today's episode, I welcome back Dewana Thompson, who runs Woke Vote and Think Rubik's. She spoke to me last in 2018, so please listen to that episode first if you'd like to get to know her biography and work to that point. In brief, she's a community organizer and consultant who's worked in campaigns in government, ranging from the DNC to the SBA to the Obama campaigns and Cory Booker's Senate campaign. She told me how Woke Vote has been growing, active in many key states, and making a difference in building community power, including through voter turnout. So, first our sponsor, and then my interview with Dewana Thompson at Woke Vote. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. You were on my show back in the summer of 2018. That was in the run-up to the midterm. And so we've had a midterm, we've had a general, we've had a runoffs in Georgia, a lot of activity in the world politically, a crazy amount. Can you catch me up about what's been happening with your various organizations and yourself and politics since we talked? Yeah. Like you said, the last time we talked, it was sort of in the middle of 2018, really trying to see what was going to happen in Florida and Georgia specifically. We had teams on the ground, both in Florida and Georgia, primarily in Florida, we were working on Amendment 4, which, as you know, one of the largest expansions of voting rights um, in our country's history. So we were really excited to be a part of the strategy in, that helped bring that about. And, of course, we were on the ground also in Georgia. Some of our individuals, this is their first time, you know, activating or organizing. Some people, you know, that we work with, they had lost faith in politics and the political system and the justice system. And, you know, we do this work of engaging them and bringing them back in the fold. And then, you know, 2018 happens and it's like, oh, we did all this work and we still didn't get, you know, we weren't able to elect, you know, a leader like Stacey Abrams or at the time Andrew Gillum. And I think what it really helped to inform for us and, and, and really cement for us is that organizing and campaigns and engagement programs really cannot center, if you will, candidates and, and parties. Because if you do that, it, everything sort of lives or dies based on the outcome for that candidate. 
it's really hard to help people build or draw the line between the win or the loss and their power. So what we've always done is help people to understand how to, to power map and move from opportunity to opportunity to continue to ultimately change the material conditions of their community. So that's why, you know, in 2018, even after what happened, you know, in Georgia and Florida, uh, particularly in the governor's races, because we had focused holistically on what does it look like to engage more voters to train more leaders? What does it look like to do more issue-based organizing? We went into 2019 still invigorated around, you know, how we can build power. We really started to focus more on training leaders. Uh, We knew that 2020 was going to be an incredible um, year as it relates to what was necessary to sort of shift this country. We knew we were going to be a big part of that, but we knew we need to build teams. And so we started building teams in about 12 different states. So we were everywhere from Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Texas, Arizona, and parts of California. And so, as you can imagine, that's a lot of work. (laughs) But what we were doing was really connecting with local leaders about the things that they care about first. And building those relationships. And we had several fellowships. We had several boot camps, um, campaign boot camps. Uh, We worked with a lot of, I mean, we have probably now over a little bit over 200 organizing partners in different communities. Many, you know, being entities that have been overlooked for so long within the traditional political and social power structure. We were really excited because even with pandemic of 2020, People were asking, how can you still be effective? How are you still able to engage? And we're like, well, the relationships that we built, you know, they're deep enough to where we actually have a phone number to call somebody. We don't have to just find them online or we didn't have to just, you know, show up at their door the way some of our traditional uh, organizing does. Like we have relationships. We have people who talk to their neighbors. And so we can really find out what are the immediate needs that people need during a COVID, you know situation and meet that. So we were really excited. Woke Vault, it really became a immediate sort of partner for communities. We fed thousands of families last year during COVID. We helped pay bills. We, you know, we became part, a central part of the fabric of a lot of the communities that we serve. And I think that's important because that helped people to stay aligned with us as we had to shift them back towards the conversation of the elections, right? Um, Because we had been dealing with or, you know, meeting those immediate needs and building those relationships, it wasn't a jump from, hey, how are you doing? How's your family doing? To, hey, you know why this election is critical. It didn't feel like we were cold calling them or, you know, randomly showing up. We had been there in some instances in places like Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. We've been there since 2018. So I really think that it helped to define the kind of relational organizing that we believe in. And it it really helped to show that our, you know, our turnout uh, rate is still one of the highest of programs like ours in the country. Even with social injustice, we were on the ground in Minneapolis. We were on the ground in Louisville. You know, we were literally still putting our bodies on the line (laughs) for both the right to vote and the right to exist. And so to play that role 
and to come out now at the beginning of 2021, having also been in Georgia for the runoff, we told everybody, everybody wants to be in Atlanta and, you know, that's the sexy place to be. But we're going to be in these smaller cities and these counties where we know that if we engage with communities of color, particularly in those areas, we can increase the margin of turnout in those areas. And so we were in the makers of the world, the savannas that you saw across the board the whole night. We were in Mecca Savannah, Augusta. We were in Albany. We were in Athens. You know, so these are places that have a significant population of African-American voters that there wasn't as much activity um, going on. And so making the connections there, we were able to increase in a lot of places over 5% the turnout in those areas. And so I think the story that we love to tell and that we are honored to lead in is the story of what does it look like to continually invest in communities of color, in their political power in their political understanding, in their political leadership, because they will always take that and apply it to the social issues, to the other issues that are material condition issues for those communities. And so that's what we've been doing, Nathaniel. And um, I'm really excited to continue in that path and hopefully not have to, you know, get stopped at every major turn under this new administration. You know, we're going to hold them to the fire as well. So we'll see what happens. Well, it does sound busy. I want to like dig in a little bit more to understand what it means when you say things like we were in a state or a city. First of all, Woke Vote as an organization, what did it turn into? How big is it? Where did it find its funding? Where did it find people to train? Well, Woke Vote started as a program or a program model to address what I really felt like was under-engagement and definitely under-invested in community of Black voters, particularly in Alabama at the time. But it aligned itself with my analysis that that the South, particularly as a whole, had gone for a long time as a place that where black and brown voters had been underengaged and underinvested in. And so what I know about sort of the political system is, you know, in terms of the organizing system, a lot of people will only invest in things that have a proven model, right? Or things that they've seen over a long amount of time, which is why you see stuff like, you know, people give to like the DSCC or different groups that have existed forever, even sometimes affinity groups, right? There are a lot of people who will give to like an NAACP, but won't give to like a Harriet Tubman Foundation, for instance, because they don't know that organization and what they've been able to do. And a lot of times that smaller organization that has been rooted in that community that is being run by those local leaders, they're the ones who are actually consistently showing up politically, showing up socially. But because the NAACP, who I love, don't get me wrong, love what Derek and them are doing over there, but because the NAACP has the larger platform and the the larger name recognition, a lot of times donors, strategists, whomever, they're willing to take a risk or to invest in the NAACPs of the world and not the Harriet Tubman organizations of the world, right? And so having been in the field for about 17 years myself, I knew that the only way Woke Vote was going to continue to exist coming out of what a lot of people felt like was an impossible victory in 2017 
I knew that we had to prove that the model, that the way in which we thought about engagement and the way in which we empowered local individuals and local leaders to to organize, we had to show that that model um, not only felt good, but that it was actually efficient and effective across intellectual discipline, right? And so what we did was we took all of the data from 2017 and 2018, all the work that we had done, all of the precincts that we had worked in. I think it's important to note, you know, a lot of programs sort of say, hey, we talked to a million voters, but they can't tell you where those, you know, where they where they live, where they work, or anything about them. All of our work is data driven and focused all the way down to the precinct. If we talk to a voter, we can tell you, you know, if they have kids, we can tell you so many things about them because we we do the analysis in a way that allows us to be intentional about our engagement. So what we did was we gave that information, all of our information, we sent it to the Analyst Institute, which many people recognize um, as one of the foremost centers on um, analysis in this country. We asked them to help us prove our model works, right? Help us show the impact that our model is able to have. And they ran tests and they did part of this during work that we were doing in 2019. And I'll go into that as well. And essentially what they came back with was a report that said, the way in which we build our program, the way in which we bring people into leadership, some of our signature pieces to our model, these things have consistently produced a regular voter, anybody you can think of, after they have been engaged by woke vote, they have a 20% chance or higher that they will turn out or they will get involved or they will do something politically or socially. And that in itself is incredible because any person in this field will tell you that it takes time to get a person to do anything, right? It takes time to get a person to to answer a phone call or to read a book or to get on a podcast, right? To be able to say that our program was able to impact just regular people at a 20% or, or higher rate, that is significant. And so what we've done is we've taken those pieces that we know are super, super efficient and rooted in really a cultural lens and a data analysis. Um, and we've applied that across the board to all of our programming. And our signature programming looks basically like this. It happens one to three ways. Either we are made aware of some opportunity, for instance, let's take what happened in Louisville with Brianna Taylor. Brianna Taylor was killed on my birthday, March 13th. And two weeks later, her family reached out to my Instagram, just my personal Instagram and said, listen, we don't know what we should be doing, but we need help getting the word out that we think an injustice has happened. And we have heard about what vote. We, we're not sure if this is what you do, but there are people from our community who say they organize with you all and that you guys might be a good place to start. Now, technically, that we're not necessarily a social justice organization, right? But we do exist to help build power in communities so that they can address the issues that they care about. So of course, if someone reaches out to me or to a member of our team and says, here's a major thing that we feel like was an injustice, we need help knowing how to organize, we're going to spring to action. And that's what we did. We were actually on the ground in Louisville with our organizing partners at Until Freedom for almost eight months, helping local leaders, local community members, and Breonna Taylor's family 
think about what does justice look like, not even necessarily in the courts, because that's a process, right? But what does it look like to heal a community? What does it look like for the family to be able to, to move on and do something in the name of Breonna Taylor that that hopes to make sure that no one else from that community is impacted that same way. And so we started to work with them on Breonna Taylor's law, which has, you know, everything to do with the no knock warrants and things that will have lasting impact for those communities. We started training a lot of the organizers there so that they can learn how to do campaigns and how to run, you know, efficient programs and how do you organize? You know, how what does it mean to knock a door? What does it mean to get a donor? So we literally go in with that information. It's one example that I can show where we don't necessarily plan to have to sort of organize in that way, but it was requested upon us because we were already doing work with other um, organizations in the Louisville community. The other way that we kind of, obviously elections present for us probably the largest opportunity to engage or to re-engage black and brown voters in the communities that we serve. Well, we always say that voting is not the the way that we're going to liberate our communities. We also, we always say that voting is a tool of liberation. So we need to always, always, always be working towards increasing the vote, using the vote to vote in leaders, righteous leaders, and to think through that process. And so essentially what we're what we are able to do is we focus on what the system has called low propensity voters. We like to call them under-engaged voters. Typically these are people who have not voted in the last three or four election cycles, right? For what local or federal or statewide. And what happens is most organizations and programs write these individuals off as they don't find them to be the wisest investment to engage in because they don't know what their behavior is going to be, right? With somebody who votes every single election cycle, Nathaniel, you and I both know, like it's it's an easy bet that they're gonna vote. So if you are interested in making sure that that person votes, you put your money behind, you know, what are, what are the things that, that they care about? But it's a harder path. It's a harder discipline to, to have to sit down and think about that person who has not either been engaged by the system or has been so impacted by the system that they are now unengaged. It's a harder process to think through what will it take to bring that person back into the fold and to empower them to vote or empower them to get involved. And that's where we start. (laughs) Um, That's the work we want to do. We want to do always that hard work. So our program specifically engages individuals who have a zero to 30% low propensity score, which means that they are the least likely to be engaged by political society or political organizations or by candidates. And we talk to them about why they need to get involved, talk to them about their leadership. We help them to see that their vote and their voice is absolutely critical. And when we're able to turn out, like I said earlier, 20% of that group of people who, who nobody really thought to engage that's where the power is. That's why we're seeing communities transform. And that's the work that we do. So we do that by identifying the largest African-American and people of color precincts in in cities and counties that we're going to work in. So for instance, if you're in a place 
uh, like Pennsylvania, where we were asked to work. Obviously, we're going to work in places like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. But even in it's not just going to Philadelphia and just setting up shop and being like, hey, anybody that's black, we're going to talk to. That's not real engagement. What it is is finding out who are the people who are doing work on the ground in Philadelphia. What do they care about? What are the organizations that are already doing good work? How can we help them fill gaps? What are the resources that they may need? And we become, to some extent, a partner with those organizations, with those communities, with those programs, and we build a strategic plan from there around the election cycle and other critical dates or opportunities that the community sees fit. That is the work that we do all year long. That is the work that helps us to actually change the communities that we serve. I've talked to a number of organizers of various sorts who do similar work in similar communities. Do you view those people, you know, a lot of them were active in Georgia in the runoffs, I'm sure you're aware of. Do you view them as competitors? Do you view them as collaborators? How do you manage to complement each other instead of being on top of each other? Yeah. Well, first of all, I absolutely don't view them as competitors. I think that it is a false narrative. And part of we've seen this in even the donor community. First of all, there's enough work out here for everybody. Um, There's so many people who need to be engaged. There's so many organizations that provide incredible work and that work needs to all be funded and supported. Many of us who do this work, we know each other. So for instance, the Latasha Browns of the world with Black Voters Matter and the Adrian Sharpshears of the world with the Black Pack, we, we're not operating in silos. We actually are talking to each other. We all kind of come at you know the this work from a, a little bit of a different angle, but ultimately with the goal of liberating our community. So it makes absolutely no sense to not have those conversations. And what we try to do on the front end is to say, okay, here here's here's what I'm gonna be focusing on. Here's the relationships that I have. And honestly, most times those things don't overlap until like the very last minute, right? When it's GOTV or get out the vote and everybody's sort of doubling down to make sure that it all works. But in a layered approach, a lot of our work, especially because most of us are those organizations that I just named, we're data driven. We know if if I'm in these precincts, I kind of know if they're there or not, right? And we discuss those things and make sure that we're not oversaturating, if you will, one community and leaving another community completely blank. The reality is, is that the under engagement in the Black community and communities of color is so historic and so deeply rooted that there is so much work that needs to be done. So there's really not an overlap, right? The overlap typically only happens when there's a very fine, you know, moment of election cycle. So for instance, you talk about Georgia and the runoff. Well, in five weeks, anything can be overlapped. And when you're trying to essentially turn out the same amount of people um, in such a short amount of time, yes, there, there's the potential for overlap. But what we also know is that in that amount of time, people need at least five to six, what we call political or social touches for it to stick. And so if I'm an organization and I only have the resources to do one phone call or one text, that typically may not be enough to, to push that voter or to encourage that voter to get out. So you hope that there is another organization or another group that can do another two or three touches. And through all of that, that voter or that potential voter hopefully is getting what they need um, to, to feel engaged. And so 
I view them as partners in purpose, um, never as uh, competitors. There's there's just too much work out here for that. How do you find the funding? How many people were working with you for you in 2020 and into 2021? And how did you find a way to pay them? Yes. So in 2020, um, I would say in our actual campaign, we hired up to about 453 individuals over the span of July through January 2021. It's all cycles, right? And in the sense of our staff, what vote staff only has three to four individuals who are on our staff um, yearly and um, permanent staff, permanent yeah. staff, right? And and. I'm seeking to increase that because uh, our capacity um, and the, the desire for our work has increased. So we absolutely need to, to, you know, we're raising resources in order to increase our permanent staff. However, just like with any organization or program, as you launch different programs, you know, and you raise the budget for those programs, you're able to hire vendors, contractors, individuals from communities so that that project can can live. And that's what we're always committed to doing. And that's also why it's important to be in a community before you just start doing anything. Because part of what we're able to do, and we're really proud of this, is that as we raise money to do these programs, 90% of the resources that we raise go to small businesses, organizations, organizers from the communities that we're trying to serve. So we we recruit by going to churches, talking to colleges, talking to um, small businesses, um, talking to local radio stations. Like we ask them, where are the people who need an opportunity? It's really about getting in that lo- local nucleus. A lot of the things that we love to do focuses around dealing with, you know, working with neighborhood presidents um, and community presidents. Uh, for instance, here in Birmingham, we have 99 Uh, neighborhoods in 23 communities and each neighborhood and community has a president. And so I know that if I'm going to be working in, for instance, my neighborhood, um, which is Bush Hills, I know that the president of Bush Hills, Miss April, I know that I need to call her and get her, you know, input on, hey, I'm thinking about doing this in Bush Hills. You know, what do you think about this? And do you know anybody who might need some work or who who would be interested in this? And Miss April can give me a list of 30 people off bat, right? Because she's connected in that way. And so that's how it works. And and we train people to do the work that we need them to do. We ask them to bring their great ideas. Like I said, we have a model. So they're, they're being brought into a model where we train them on how to organize, how to make phone calls how to knock doors, how to do social media engagement, how to write an op-ed, all of those things. And that way they leave with a skill and they're able to then take that skill. If they had it before, they're increasing that skill. If they never had it before, they're able to take that skill and apply it to different things. And we try to stay involved and engage with them over over time. So quarterly, we try to reach out and just, you know, see how everyone's doing and find out what are some of the critical things that they're working on or that that they're concerned about. And we try to highlight those things. So fundraising for us last year, we raised a little bit over $2 million. It's an incredible raise for, for us. There are programs who do the same work that we do, who produce 
less than what we're able to produce in terms of outcome who were working with 10 to $20 million budgets last year, right? And so I think it's still a conversation around value, how people value political engagement, how people value building the political power of Black and brown communities, what that needs to look like to address the gaps in the funding of organizations like mine versus, you know, organizations, for instance, maybe I think, you know, we were talking about, uh, and by we, I mean, uh, there's a sort of a collective of organizers that I've worked with since 2008, when we were all working on um, President Obama's first campaign. And we all met at that time. And we were talking about how, you know, it was nothing for us to be told like, hey, you know, we need you in North Carolina tomorrow. And you might be in Texas, right? And there was no stipend or anything. It was just, we doing real important work, get to get to North Carolina or, you know, wherever it is. <laughs> so, but today, in, you know, in the year of our Lord 2021, people are like, wait, you want me to get where without no gas? There's a different set of circumstances. There's a, you know, we're in the middle of different pandemics. Our country has taken several, you know, hits as it relates to our economics. And, and I think that, the reality is, is that people need more, you know, the resources that are necessary for people to be able to engage at the rate or the level that we need them to. It requires an increased level of investment. And so for us, we're super excited to show that this thing, that any dollar that's invested, particularly with woke vault and models like ours, that the rate of return on that investment is significant. It's one of the greatest rates of return that you're going to have. And so all of our donors, you know, some who, who would love to remain anonymous, but that, you know, we've got great donors who have consistently given for the last two to three years who see the value and they're helping us to find new donors and new opportunities and foundations that can learn about our work. And that really is what I feel like right now. If you ask me, what am I doing 2021? It's really thinking about how to put the package together that explains why it's critical to now continue to invest in Woke Vote for what I truly believe is governance. Again, we're in a different space as a country politically, but there's still so many things that need to be addressed and that are going to be addressed both on the local level and, you know, and on the the federal level. And that's going to take buy-in of communities and community leaders. And so this, especially if we want to get to 2022, where we're going to be right back in the space of needing to organize in a major way um, around the midterm elections. And so you cannot piece together programming and imagine that people will have a holistic understanding of power. If you piece together the programming, they're going to have a piece together concept of power. We need people to, to approach politics and to approach justice and to approach liberation with the understanding that this is a long game with the understanding that it is a consistent bending of the arc, right? And so that requires consistent funding. And so we're doing the work. We have a, two fellowships every year that, that, that we always have to have over 50 individuals per fellowship that we train for six to seven weeks. It's a paid fellowship. Um, it gives them every bit of information of how do you do this work? Why should you do this work? How do you frame this work in the context of your communities? All those kinds of things. And we move on from there. And so that, that's really where we are right now. One thing that I worry about is the 
effort that we took as a progressive community and movement to organize post 2016 to fight like hell in 2017 and in 18 and and in 2020 and then now we have to govern right a lot of our leaders going into the government a lot of donors and other people might be relaxing a little bit but the threat is not gone the house is incredibly close we have redistricting we got yeah maybe trump running again in four years the fight continues do you think that people have their eye on that long game which is longer even than that or do you worry about the focus dissipating i think that if history (laughs) gives us anything to to reflect on i even look at what happened after we were able to win in 2008 with President Obama? We got crushed in 2010. The shellacking. I mean, yeah. it was crazy. And I remember after I, I got off of that election cycle, I went back to go work in municipal government here in the city of Birmingham. And I was under the mindset of, man, I'm going to take everything that I learned while I was on on the road and, and, and learning how to organize. And I'm going to try to apply that to the local things that we have here. Like that was my whole thing. Right. But that was not the collective thinking of every single person who came out of that cycle. Right. And so I think that, um, yes, I am concerned that people for several reasons may get a little too relaxed. One, people are tired, right? People haven't had a chance and myself included in like four years to like breathe. (laughs) And so that second that you take that breath, it's like, Oh, that felt good. I haven't breathed like that in a second. I might want to breathe. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's the human part of it, right? It's like, man, I just need a break. So that's first. And number two, I think that, as you said, there are a lot of people who are on the outside fighting for what they believe has is now significant change. And now they're on the inside. And I, as somebody who's been on both the inside and the outside, having been a former political appointee to the Obama administration and having worked, you know, as an organizer on the ground in, 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 in many states, I can tell you that how you affect change on the inside and how you organize or change on the outside are two different things. And you have to do both. And you have to have both engines sort of running full speed in order to continue to move forward. And what hasn't happened, and I think this is just indicative of so many movements, so many leadership models, is the secession planning, right? That's really why you and I probably both feel to some extent some concern around what's going to happen next is because I can't always readily identify the next torchbearer or torchbearers, if you will, the next group of folk who are going to say, okay, well, while they're in there, we're going to keep working on this. Or, you know, it seems that we kind of assign that work to people no matter where they matriculate, right, Uh, or how they matriculate. And so my job and organizations like WokeVote, we're trying to consistently build thinkers, leaders, activists, politicians, you know, whoever it is, so that there can be a wave every time of fresh leadership, of consistent leadership, consistent and fresh investment of vision of all of that, so that we're not going from cycle to cycle and starting over every single time. You know, the ebb and flow of government, you and I both know it just is inevitable. So if we know that there's going to be like, we might be flowing right now, but we might be ebbing in a couple of minutes, right? So what are we, you know, what are we planning 
right now so that that the impact of that is not is not so great on the people that we serve. That's the work that I'm trying to do right now. And that's the work that I think a lot of organizations like mine who are closely aligned to, you know, more of a grassroots model, we're thinking about what are those local elected officials that we need, those prosecutors, those sheriffs, those those district attorneys, like who are the people and the programs and the initiatives that we need to be organizing and making sure that we don't let up on over the next several years that helps us get to a more perfect union the way we need to. That really is the work. This is like the golden moment, which is why when people ask me like you, have you taken a break? And I'm like, I knew I couldn't take a break in January. Right. Because this is the mo- like this is actually the time where you have that conversation where there's still enough of a memory of like everything that we just went through in 2020. And the hope of what could be different right now in January of 2021, that I guarantee you by April of 2021, people will have forgotten half of what happened in 2020. Some folks have forgotten that they tried to take over the Capitol just two weeks ago, right? We have to keep up, if you will, with the way in which the the cycle of information changes. That's the same aggression that we kind of have to have with how we continue to organize. All that is true. However, there aren't that many people who bring what you bring to this fight. Do you think you, among the people that you trained up or your team trained up, there are some folks that could, you know, run their own woke votes or take over yours or are at that caliber and that energy level and commitment? Absolutely. I'm so excited because, I mean, I don't do this work alone. Let's just be clear. I couldn't do this work alone. And so we have um, regional leaders who, for instance, I, I, I can lift up, you know, the names of Ben and Tally, who were our organizers in making, who were new to Woke Vote during the work that we're doing in Georgia. And now we're working with them on building out programming for that whole region. I mean, they're going to be leading that. These are two gentlemen who have already been incredible leaders in their community who have um, sort of the the support of both the local leadership and also the community there who, who are great validators for what needs to happen. They're now going to be building out a woke vote chapter for that region. I won't be the person there doing that work, right? I've trained Ben and Tally. And now it's going to be Ben and Tally who are taking that next step and identifying new organizers and training them and bringing them into the fold. And so for me, if an organization is not consistently doing that, replicating itself, building building new leaders, charging them to, to actually lead and do the work and, and allowing them to imagine to some extent what that work needs to look like, you're inevitably, you know, you're not going to exist. And so we have right now about 16 woke folk chapters. The goal is to have about 30 by the end of the year that are fully functioning, that have at least 10 to 15 sort of what we call uh, full-time volunteers that are being led by a, a, a paid regional leader. That's the work that that we're doing. What votes, it's blown even <laughs> my, my mind, quite frankly. Um, I was just trying to answer a call, you know, in 2017, really trying to prove that the investment in our community was necessary. And then out of that came this organization. And I'm grateful to have led in this way for the last several years. But I also know that there are going to be 
brilliant minds and and some of those minds are with us right now the Cameron Thickpins of the world and the Deanna Reeds of the world and the Davis of the world who David was with us in 2017 and now he's leading the Democratic Party in Raleigh Durham North Carolina and he got all of his training from woke vote and I can't help but be excited, you know, about that, right? Again, we're not necessarily for party affiliation, but that was what he was able to do and what he was what he thought would make the best opportunity for him. And now he's doing some very significant things. He won his county and they had not won that county in a while. And so these are the the success stories. These are the things that for me, it's the real work. It's the how does this thing live beyond you? And that's what we're working on, you know, right now. I think you rightly said that you don't want to focus too much on particular candidates, but you also mentioned the disappointments in the governor's races in 2018 in Florida and Georgia. There's talk that Stacey Abrams will run in Georgia this next time. Isn't a possibility like that something that you can't help but organize around? My political statement would be that I think Stacey Abrams won in 2018. I think the system failed Stacey Abrams in 2018. And what Stacey Abrams did was she addressed the system that created the opportunity for her to experience what she experienced. And now we're seeing the fruit of her, you know, addressing that system. So whether or not I think she'll win or not, if she if she was to run again, that's a whole other conversation. But the way in which what vote then exists in that world is the way any candidate is going to win is with increased turnout, right? And so our goal is to always educate, empower, organize, and to turn out. Whether Stacey runs or not, when there's a a governor's race, a gubernatorial race for for Georgia, because Georgia is one of the states that we are anchored in. We are going to do the work of encouraging, engaging, educating people on what the choices are. Now, what we always say and what we always tell our voters is to look to choose righteous leaders. And what we have to then determine is what is a righteous leader? What does that look like for our communities? What does that look like for the people that we serve. And people are smart. They can draw whatever lines that they need to draw. And so if we're saying, listen, here are the things we care about as a community. Here's what this role does, which a lot of people don't even do. Like we ha- we have had to put out documentation, videos, all kinds of things on, hey, here's what a governor does. Here's what a prosecutor does, you know, so that people understand how it impacts or potentially impacts them and their families. And we say, you know, here's what a good governor looks like. Here's what a governor that might cause us harm looks like. Now you figure out who you think the best person is and now you need to get out and vote. And here's the best way to get out and vote. Here's the, you know, all of those things. So we will absolutely be on the ground. Me personally, Dewana Thompson, not speaking on behalf of woke vote or anything else. You know, I would love to see, you know, and support Stacy. She's a, she's a, a, a dear colleague and she's a, a, a freedom fighter of, in her own right. And me personally, I would support, you know, her doing that. But in terms of our program um, and in terms of just really honestly the effectiveness of our program, we have to stick to the tenets of how we use, how, how power is made in an election cycle. And really power is made by turnout, right? And it's made about how you impact the actual turnout of the election. And so 
for us to be able to continuously say in the precincts that we work, the voters that we engage, they turn out at a higher rate than when others engage them or none engagement at all. That's really the power that we're building. And that's that's the program that's the most important. If you had to point to a key thing that you learned since we last talked, you know, a lot coming in. What did you add incrementally? What did you discover, if anything? I really have been, I don't don't know if shocked is the best word, but maybe taken aback by how much internal conflict there is, even in the progressive space. And I think the reason I bring that up is when you have a common enemy, right, or a common issue that you know, you know, man, this is wrong, we can all, you know, point to that this is wrong and we're going to organize around. It makes for an easier path. But when you feel as though the roadblocks are set up by those who are supposed to be in the space that you've both created and that you exist in, organizing through that is a lot different. And I think that what 2018 through 2021 showed me is that there are still so many internal conflicts in the progressive space, right, around who gets funding, what programs matter, what what does a, a viable candidate look like, or what community should we focus on, um, you know, what issues do we care about, where do we stand on universal background, All the, there's so many places where there's conflict and that conflict is significant enough in a lot of times to actually stop progress. And I think for me, it was eye-opening to have to deal with that almost every day over the last three years. And and it felt like almost an attack on, you know, it, it almost sometimes felt like, is this an attack on, you know, the organization because we're, you know, uh, because of what we stand for, or is this just we're dealing with or finally having to deal with what's happening behind the scenes and the internal conflict. And I think what we've tried to do, at least I've tried to do um, with our team at Woke Vote is, you know, I always tell people, number one, we're going to assume best intentions first. So, you know, let's assume that, <laughs> you know, that that this isn't an attack. Let's assume that this isn't a glass ceiling. Let's assume that this isn't a, a chair being taken away from the table. But if it is, let's bring the wood. Let's bring the glass and let's bring everything else that we need so that we can move forward. Whether it's the the easiest route or whether or not we gotta, you know, build a new a new way forward. And so I think that that's really the last three years have helped me to to really become a carpenter, <laughs> uh, a builder and 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 a consensus leader as it relates to just the internal workings of the progressive space. Politics is so complicated because people are so complicated. It's hard to have a marriage. It's hard to be the I don't know, the president of some local community area in Birmingham, like you mentioned, it's hard to, you know, organize a school. It's super hard to do a state or a nation. It's unbelievably complex to form a coalition and to work alongside other people in a generally aligned cause because everybody doesn't agree. Right. I agree. I, um, you know, I love people. (laughs) (laughs) This <laughs> work for people, but you know, people, um, they, they, we, you know, I, I can't exclude myself. You know, we 
we are dynamic beings. And one of the things that I think keeps me just somewhat sane is that I know that I can't be all things to all people, but I am confident that what I am supposed to be and the group of people or the the communities that I'm supposed to be something for and something to and work with, I am confident that I will always find my way to navigate that and to be what that needs to be. And I think as long as you can say that in your work, right, as long as you can say that in your pursuit, there are so many different assignments and so many different ways people are supposed to show up in community. And I'm just focusing as much as I can um, and as earnestly as I can on the way I'm supposed to show up and the way Won't Vote and Think Rubik's and other spaces that I inhabit the way we're supposed to show up. And we don't always get it right. I can, I'll be the first to say, you know, it is hard to do this work and we're learning as well. We're, we're not a hundred year old organization like the NAACP or the National Congress you know, um, Congress of Negro Women or, you know, like we, we're three years old, you know? And so, you know, with any three-year-olds, you know, you know, we, 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 we're, we're learning. I will say that it's been the most humbling three years uh, of my leadership and, and of my path. And I am wholeheartedly convinced that it's the work that I should be doing and that what vote needs to be doing. Well, I'm very glad you're doing it. And I think it's made a difference. I remember when I, talked to you the first time, uh, asked you about running for office yourself <laughs> you did. and you suggested that might be in the cards someday if things landed in the right way. Has your answer changed at all? It has not. <laughs> it has not. I, uh, I will say that uh, efforts to assist me in making the decision to run have increased. I've, I've been, <laughs> That's you know, flattering. Right. Uh, and, I, and I'm honored by that. I just think that I'm not, I can't even remember what I told you last time, but I think running and being elected, I think, you know, and, and governing from an elected space is such an incredible responsibility if that ever became, you know, required of me, I definitely would lean into it. But I think that the work that it takes to change the system, to build communities, um, to grow power, that work um, sometimes is really hard to do as an elected official. And so I believe that I would have to, you know, shift um, in order to do that work. I can be a transformative leader, of course, but changing systems is not necessarily something you're always able to do as an elected official, in my opinion. If and when that is required of me, then you know I will be shifting to reimagine how my leadership looks in you know in the greater scheme of things. And I, I'm not there yet, but you know I'm not you know vehemently opposed to it either, <laughs> like I used to be. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Always an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? First of all, thank you for continuing to have these conversations and to lift up voices like mine. And if there are people who want to get involved with Woke Vote, you can find us at WokeVote.us or uh, Woke Vote on any of the social channels. We're really excited. We're also hiring and we're looking for individuals who really want to um, connect with community and build programs. Look up the opportunities on our website and get involved. We're only going to bend that arc if we bend it together. So we're excited about that. Well, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you. That was Tawana Thompson at Woke Vote. Tawana is at wokevote.us. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.